been a war. And we are on the losing side of it. We are on our knees with guns to our heads and they are picking us off one by one. Susan Jacobs, the general counsel at E-Corp. You want to know what her nickname is inside the company? Madam Executioner. Not just because she could kill any lawsuit filed against them, but because those lawsuits usually involved deaths. These are the cowards we are dealing with. Hello, friend. You've got mail. Welcome to another episode of Hello, Friend, a podcast all about Mr. Robot. Today, Henry and I are here to talk about season two. Hey, Henry, how's it going? Not bad, Margaret. How are things with you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I'm really excited that Mr. Robot is back. And we're here to talk about the first episode of season two called Unmasked Part One. So it looks like this season... All of the episodes were written and directed by the show creator, Sam Esmael. So that makes it pretty easy to remember. So what did you think of the premiere episode for season two, Henry? I was maybe had too high of expectations, at least for the first episode. uh, But I felt a little bit like we were exploring well-worn territory. When I first watched it, I was a little bit disappointed. And then the second time I watched it, I liked it a lot more. And I think the reason I liked it a lot more the second time I watched it is that I wasn't seeing it in the context of all the hype that the USA Network was peddling. There's like an after show where you got to see the actors. And in some ways it was really cool, but it also kind of took away a little bit of the mystique. What did you feel was disappointing for this premiere episode? I guess I was hoping that there would be other narrative devices aside from Mr. Robot talking to Elliot. You know, like I I felt like when season one was towards its end and a lot of the storyline kind of centered around Elliot's loose grip with reality and his hallucinations and what was going on with there. That, I, I went with it, but I wasn't a huge fan of that particular device. And this first episode has a lot of that going on where Elliot's, you know, has his routine, trying not to lose his mind, trying to fight off the advances of Mr. Robot as Mr. Robot tries to get him to cooperate with him. It just felt a little bit like I was hoping for a little bit more. Some people felt like it was definitely setting up the pieces to play out for the rest of the season. I found some things about it that I really personally appreciated and loved. Maybe we can talk about both the good and the bad. And when we open to see Tyrell, I suppose, right in the aftermath when the hack was performed, and we see it was Tyrell who was wearing the Mr. Robot mask. Do you think he was the one who did that final F Society spot that was talking to Evil Core? Was that Tyrell in the in the last season? I was wondering about that because when I saw that, I thought, well, it, it seemed like in season one when that F Society message happened, I remember thinking that it seemed a little bit different than the previous F Society messages, 
And so the idea that it might have been Terrell, fully plausible. I think so, too. And not to talk too much about the Mr. Robot after show, after I complained about it so much, it's called Hacking Robot. There were some interesting tidbits which they shared there. So the actor who plays Tyrell, who was named Martin Wallstrom, said that one of the books he read in order to prepare for the part of Tyrell is something that early in my career in technology was handed to me. And that's the book, The 48 Laws of Power. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's really insidious. Why do you say insidious? I would recommend that everybody check out this book. It's basically a book of quote unquote laws that you need to follow to be successful in business. Some of them are common sense, never out shine the master, make what you do seem effortless, cultivate an air of effortlessness, stuff like that. And it's, it's very Machiavellian, along with Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand, however you pronounce that. This book was circulating a lot in my early, in the early days of at least my tech career as sort of a Bible. I don't think it's as much in fashion, but even 50 Cent, the a rapper, partnered with the author of that book and wrote The 50 Laws of Power, which, because a lot of people in the musical community also gravitated to that book. So when the actor Martin Wallstrom referenced it, I kind of perked up. It's really interesting. And it makes me think what he knows about his character that we don't, if he's reading that to prepare. I thought it was funny that Terrell said that he thought the mask was pretty silly. Yeah, I caught that too. I thought that was pretty funny. When Elliot was executing the hack, it was called a Fox Society, the program that was used to begin digital Armageddon. Elliot said it's happening. What was Elliot doing when he headed over to that popcorn maker? Well, in the previous episodes in season one, there was a gun placed there, right? And so I thought he was going for the gun and then the scene cuts away shortly thereafter, leaving that part still in mystery. Yes. And I think we'll probably come back to that a little bit later on. I have some theories about that. Let me hear your theories. I've been kind of reserving judgment. My approach to this season of Mr. Robot I think is a little bit more cautious. Like I think in season one, not knowing what to expect, I made up a lot of theories very early on, only to see most of them completely wrong. <laughs> and so I think for season two, my attitude is a little bit more wait and see and try to formulate hypotheses. Okay, well, maybe uh, I'll save my theory for a little bit later in this episode, because I think there are some tie-ins to what I think might have happened to Terrell later on. But right after the scene where we cut away from the popcorn maker and Chekhov's gun, we have a flashback to when Elliot falls out the window and then he's in the hospital and he has a head injury, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too, because I think we discussed it in a previous episode. You know, I had thought that there might be a possibility that Elliot jumped out the window on his own uh, to hurt himself. Whereas I think in prior episodes, there was some talk about his father pushing him out the window. And so it seems like this this uh, falling out the window is deep in Elliot's psyche and plays this deep role around blame and shame. That's a really good point. And when I heard that he had, had a head injury uh, during that fall, which would make sense that he would have that, and a mild concussion, I thought back to a lot of different studies, not that I can quote any, but talk about football players who have head injuries and how head injuries can have a really significant impact on your your development, your cognitive development later on in life. And if he was passed out at all or anything like that, does has that 
was that the beginning of Eliot's fragmentation? Yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting because, yeah, it could be. I mean, people talk about with multiple personality disorder, how oftentimes that can be uh, started with some traumatic physical event that causes psychic se- separation. And so perhaps in this particular case, the psychic separation from Eliot occurred when that fall out the window occurred where there were basically two storylines where he was pushed out by his father or and he was the victim or he jumped out the window himself and was actually the, the cause of his own injury and someone who's unwell. Yeah, I, I was very, you know, usually I don't appreciate flashbacks too much, but this time I was pretty interested. And then of course, they really go out of their way to make the mother as crass and as unfeeling and callous and emotionally abusive as possible to the point where the doctor actually kicks the parents out of the room. One little humorous Easter egg that was in that scene was there was a pamphlet next to Elliot, which was called God's Hand in Our Hardship. That's pretty funny you're you're really good at catching those easter eggs i'm more focused on like the emotional trauma of the moment and how screwed up his parents are don't you feel sorry for elliot's dad yeah uh elliot's dad who has a terminal illness caused by evil core who is going to die um and have some twisted version of himself be the psychic tormentor of his only son it's a pretty sad outcome i know i know and the and the character of Elliot's father is really a lot different than what Mr. Robot becomes. Mr. Robot is a tormentor in many ways, whereas Elliot's father seemed like, in real life, a loving and caring individual. And it's interesting that Elliot, as he recreates his father, creates a version of his father that in some ways remedies the deficiencies of his actual father, in that the Mr. Robot slash father that he imagines is someone who doesn't take any crap from anyone, who is a fighter, who hurts people who hurt him. And those are all the things that we see through these flashbacks that Elliot's father did not do. Another thing I loved about this scene in the hospital were the brain scans and how they were almost like Rorschach has images or a collage and then I looked up the song I knew I knew the song that was playing but I didn't know the artist and it was Daydreaming by Lupe Fiasco featuring Jill Scott then we cut to the next scene and we find out Elliot's living with his mom and what is it with these millennials in the show who keep going back to their parents <laughs> we saw <laughs> we see this with Elliot we saw this with uh his uh, co-worker before. What's going on there? The economy's effed in, in real life and the economy is effed in Mr. Robot. So I guess there are diminishing choices. And for Elliot, I don't know if he mentions it this time or later on, he stays with his mom because she's the strictest person he knows. He's all about putting himself in a perfectly constructed loop. He's just trying to go analog and exercise Mr. Robot from his consciousness. You might not think it's a way to live. But why not? Repeating the same tasks each day without ever having to think about them. Isn't that what everybody does? Keep things on repeat? To go along with their NCISs and Lexapro? Isn't that where it's comfortable? And it seems to me that he doesn't seem to realize that Mr. Robot was born in some ways out of the craziness that was his life which was his life with his mother. And so the idea of him going back to live with his mom 
to get Mr. Robot out of his life just seems crazy to me. I guess he is crazy. I guess he is crazy. It was a little bit uncanny. Again, I keep talking about the Hacking Robot recap show after the premiere episodes aired. It was so unsettling to see the real Rami Malek, who is a pretty animated, sociable, likable guy compared to the part he plays. I almost wanted him to stay mysterious a little bit. Did you check out that President Obama footage? Wasn't that cool? Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I was thinking to myself, how did they splice together this stuff uh, to make it uh, fit what the plot line called for? Especially the parts where he was naming characters from the show. So naming Terrell Wellick. I was like, that took some really crafty manipulation there. And perhaps a glimpse into our future where our president will be an avatar and virtual and basically programmed to say the things that we want the president to say to us. Oh, that reminds me of this really old school 80s show called Max Headroom, where there was a really bad 80s animated character. I think he was some kind of news announcer, and that was the same thing. And it reminds me a little bit of V is for Vendetta as well, although I don't know if that totally fits. But but we learned from President Obama that the hackers are still at large. It's not that long after the hack took place. So Elliot hasn't been in isolation at his mom's for too long. There were some great overhead shots of his square little box of a bedroom. I thought that was really gray and depressing looking. And at contrast with the success that Elliot and F Society had, for me, watching this whole episode, I kind of kept just thinking to myself, they did what they wanted and life goes on just like this. Like the it, like it's hard for me to think that the world would change so little, even visually, after a hack of that kind of magnitude. And that he would, after this, go live with his mother in the small little room. Like that, I didn't really understand. Yeah, I mean, I was often wondering how realistic it was that life would go on in such a potentially normal way. Restaurants are still open. So we see later on that Elliot has a new friend, Leon, who is played by the rapper Joey Badass, which I think is kind of badass in and of itself. And uh, they're just having a normal lunch and dinner at the diner. Yeah. And I guess everyone's just using cash which was alluded to, I think, in the, towards the end of season one. And could our society really run on cash for what seems to be like weeks in this case? Like, could that actually happen? I personally think it would happen for a little while because people are so used to money having value. And it would, I mean, in some ways, if people pretend that currency has value, then it's probably just as valuable as it is in a lot of ways even now. Economists would probably disagree with me, but it it is a good question to consider. Yeah, like even running out of paper money, like I think the monetary supply of actual physical money has been drastically reduced over the last 20, 25 years. I, I wonder like how well our economy could actually function without credit cards or electronic currency at this point. I'm going to do some more research into what happened during the great crash of 1929 to see if there's anything to be learned from there. There were some cool things I found out about Leon or Joey Badass, the actor, musician and actor, and the diner where they were hanging out. So as you know, Henry, I'm in New York right now. And 
I found out that Joey Badass was raised in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is, a, as you know, a neighborhood in Brooklyn. He is a co-founder of a hip-hop collective called Pro Era. And then I went a little bit crazy when I saw that they were at this diner. And I was like, I feel like I've seen this diner before. And in the show where Leon and Elliot are hanging out, it's called Extreme Junction Diner. For those who care, in real life, it's called the Pathos Diner, and it's located in Highland Park, Brooklyn, just to give us a sense of, I guess, where they are hanging out. Good detective yeah. work. Good detective work. <laughs> I'm a nerd. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Did you, I thought it was pretty humorous that Leon was obsessed with Seinfeld. That is pretty funny. Although I have to admit, I think I might have seen one episode of Seinfeld in my entire life. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I make up for it then, because I think I've seen every single episode of Seinfeld more than once. Are you a fan, I guess? I was, and then when I watch it recently, it just seems very dated, like very 90s. But I think in another 10 years, it'll seem funny again. Yeah, well, I need to maybe watch a few episodes because I think at the time, so many people I knew were really into it. And of course, in the 90s, if people were really into something, then I automatically was not going to be into it. So I was very sort of, in my own mind, counter whatever. <laughs> it didn't matter what. So that's probably why I didn't see it. But Leon seems to be pretty obsessed with it. It's really messing with his mind. And Elliot doesn't seem to care because he doesn't really want to do a lot of talking. And Leon sure can fill up the, the time and space with his own talking. So we're going to have to ask this about every new character. Is he real? I know. Is he real? Is Leon real? And how in the heck is Elliot able to make friends, given that he is such a freak? Why would somebody so cool like Leon want to spend lunch and dinner every single day with Elliot, who's kind of a drag, let's face it? That's what makes me wonder if he's imaginary. Like, if he's there every lunch and every dinner... Maybe that's because he's not really there. Yeah, maybe Elliot's not even really there. Maybe Elliot doesn't really exist. <laughs> maybe none of us are really here, Margaret, and I'm just talking to myself. Well, I know somebody who does exist, Henry, and you know who that is? Who? Hot Carla, the local pyro. Elliot's personal totem. <laughs> Hot Carla. You know, this, and so here again is the other similarity with Fight Club, right? Like he's now going to these self-help groups, just like the character in Fight Club did. Yeah, he's he, he's going to self-help groups like the character in Fight Club did, and he's just doing the best he can to stick to reg, a, a re, regime. Oh my God, stick to a, a regular routine, not a regime. <laughs> and... Uh, and he doesn't even like sports, but for him, he sees the beauty in the roles of sports, the invisible code of chaos. he rather sit and watch that because it gives him some kind of zen state, I guess, by watching basketball, the pickup basketball game, even though he can't stand it. Yeah, going back to the similarity of Fight Club, I wonder, because there's, to me, similar characteristics with Elliot's character and the main character Fight Club, in the sense that like they both have these imaginary... Uh, you know, protagonists, or maybe antagonists, who it's revealed to us, but they also feel like they know the secrets of things, that they are privy to this hidden layer of reality that is somehow more authentic and real than the reality that most people live in, right? And 
then it goes to me like it makes me wonder like they're both the fascination with self-help groups is that because in some ways they're seen as like portals to a more authentic reality like you get at the heart of suffering like you are around people who are literally and genuinely suffering from something that maybe isn't talked about in everyday life there is some level of comfort there i can see what you're saying like there's got to be some tapping into normalcy and even elliot at some point mentions that these people are normal enough, which I think is funny because who's normal really? Elliot finds some comfort in the church group and even the basketball game. So that's a good point. And even his journal writing, he's writing journals and sketching out QR codes in pencil, very grounding for him. He's trying to really keep himself intact, I think. And when literally his brain is flying apart, right? Like I was that scene where Christian Slater pulls the trigger, wow, mm-hmm. like that was surprising. And then, you know, it, he continues on and it's just like, wow, okay. Okay, so that's where I think that's a hint of what might have happened to Tyrell because somebody got shot in the head, quote unquote, IRL in real life. Ooh, good point, right? Because Mr. Robot standing there pulling the trigger, someone sitting down, is that what he did to Tyrell? and under the control of Mr. Robot. Yeah, I don't know, but it was incredibly creepy to see Mr. Robot shoot Elliot, like you're saying, and apparently he's done it over and over again. And This time we see it, Elliot writes in his journal, I didn't freak out this time. He's back seeing Krista too. She even, in spite of her better judgment, agrees to continue seeing him. And it's all because all of these efforts that Elliot is doing is all because he just doesn't trust him. He keeps saying that I don't trust him, meaning Mr. Robot, but really what does that mean? He doesn't trust himself. Yeah, and that broken trust with himself, like he's trying to, you know, put scotch tape on it with the power of routines by putting himself around his mother, who's very strict. Like in the absence of any working spine of his own, he's got to like basically have an exoskeleton. Yeah, and this is around the point where Elliot went into voiceover mode and he was talking to us, the viewer. And I don't think I've ever seen this before. I'm sure it's been done, but Elliot talking to us, the viewer, he's mad at us. He's not ready to trust us yet. He's pissed at us. And that was that was a pretty weird feeling, I think, as a viewer to have the narrator say they're mad at me. I didn't, I was very uncomfortable. Sure, because, and I, I have the same reaction because in season one, it was all about get close, come on in, let me tell you some secrets. And it, it was seductive. We all, all the watchers, everyone viewing, we got pulled in and we all felt special for being able to glimpse the inside. And now with this first episode of season two, it's very much like you stay over here. You know, it's all about Elliot carving out his own space, his own territory and pushing people out of that space, including us. Yeah. So he won't tell us what he told Krista because he said, you know, pretty much we don't deserve to know. We've lost his trust. One thing I wanted to point to when you mentioned Mr. Robot shooting Elliot, one thing I noticed and I wanted to see if you felt this too, when Mr. Robot was shooting him in the head, he had an incredible look of compassion on his face, in his eyes, Christian Slater, towards Elliot when he was doing that. Like he it was he was feeling sorry for Elliot. It was paining him to do this. Hmm. Interesting. Are you sure you're not confusing the compassionate look that Christian Slater always has on his face? (laughs) (laughs) Considering I'm a huge Christian Slater fan, I don't know. It could be just my reading into it for sure. (laughs) 
I, I, I want to know, Margaret, did you pause it and look deep into his eyes, find the <laughs> compassion there? Christian Slater plays Mr. Robot, where he's really crass and he's a tormentor, but he still has the dad in him. Well, but so Christian Slater's character in this reminds me a lot of this character they played in Pump Up the Volume. Did you ever see that movie? No, but I'm going to now that you've referenced it a few times. Yeah, he, he his character in that like he plays a young guy on a pirate radio station, but the the energy that he puts into his rants about the state of the universe and how screwed up the world is, I feel like the Christian Slater and Mr. Robot is channeling directly from that younger Christian Slater. Yeah, I could see that. I've made comments on how he re- it reminds me of some of the elements of his character JD and Heather's, not the compassionate part, of course, the more psycho part. I loved seeing them cut off the balls of the Wall Street bull, the F Society people. <laughs> the, the, the emasculation of Wall Street. <laughs> I love that scene. I love that scene because you know what? I, I really dislike that statue. Yeah. I used to work maybe a few blocks from that statue and it looks a lot better in photos than actually walking by it. Cause it's just, it takes up a lot of space. It's big. It's kind of, it's not my favorite work of art. So I hear you. And then we cut to see this, woman who's jogging through Union Square. We don't really know who she is. She looks familiar to me because she's the actress Sandrine Holt and she was on Fear the Walking Dead and she was on, I think, I think House of Cards maybe. But now she's playing Susan Jacobs, a lawyer. And man, if there was ever a lesson of where the internet of things could go wrong, it is in her smart home. And I thought that was good they touched on that. Yeah, I have a bit of a smart home set up myself. And so when all that was going on, I really tried to put myself in her shoes to think like, how would that feel? Like her character was definitely creeped out and intimidated by that stuff going on. And the implication that, you know, someone's trying to convey is I have invaded your privacy. I am so deep into your your life that I can control what you watch and I can control the lights in your house. That's how much control I have of what you're about. I think that's pretty frightening. Yeah, I think so too. Do you like your smart home and or your smart home elements? And do you have concerns about it being hacked into? Yeah, there are definitely measures and steps that I take to minimize the security risk. Um, and I'm pretty thoughtful in terms of where I put the devices or how I've set them up. I think for me, the biggest advantage is being able to have a forensic record of what has happened. Um, just because there's a lot of crazy things that happen around my uh, my neighborhood, it's sometimes nice just to know that there's going to be a video record. I don't know if I would have reacted as extremely as she did leaving the house. I mean, I guess if it became freezing cold and, and if I had a house up in Greenwich, Connecticut, maybe I would hightail it up to Connecticut myself. But she seemed to be a little too freaked out for for what was happening. I, I thought the home was beautiful. I've, I've been to homes that have uh, pools in the basement and I assume it's in the basement and that's pretty sweet to have I wouldn't mind having one of those yeah I agree it's a, it's a great place um, I think the smart home hacking it makes me wonder and it's a theme that touches on the show uh, where we don't 
maybe fear the innovations that we're making enough. Where if you think about prior generations, right? When you think about like the greatest technical or scientific achievement of the greatest generation, it was nuke. It was splitting the atom, and that unlocked the nuclear bomb, and it unlocked nuclear power, potentially limitless power. But they quickly understood the downsides、um, of. What they had discovered—that there was radioactivity caused、uh, environmental destruction and damage, as well as, well as human suffering and loss of life—they saw the downsides of these things, and they put into place measures and rules and laws to prevent the technology、um, spiraling out of control and creating all these harmful effects. And it strikes me that our generation has this technological advancement achievement called the internet, or Computers, network technology, and that if we're not careful, we might end up not doing what our grandparents did, which was fully understand what we've exactly created and take appropriate steps to mitigate the harm. Not only to ourselves, but future generations. To your point, we cut to another found footage assemblage featuring the former transportation secretary Leon Panetta, and wasn't he the former CIA director for a while? And he was referring to this incident as a cyber Pearl Harbor. Exactly,、um, and to me, it's not the big infrastructure attacks that are the real danger. Or that's really insidious. It's really like the cumulative mass effect of all these small changes、um, that are really potentially concerning. Yeah, and somebody who is super concerned is poor Gideon. Gideon comes to see Elliot as sort of a last-ditch hope of talking Elliot into turning over whatever evidence he has. All safe is completely brick, and Elliot can't even concentrate on the conversation with Gideon because Mr. Robot is doing everything to distract him, including pretending he's slicing Gideon's neck. And do you think that this because if Elliot actually did what Gideon wanted, it would somehow he would learn something relevant that Mr. Robot doesn't want him to learn? It does seem that for whatever reason, Mr. Robot does not want Elliot. To first of all help out Gideon because it would expose F society and it would expose everything that they're up to, and sort of like us, it doesn't seem like Mr. Robot has a whole lot of respect for Gideon. He calls him a scared small animal who's who's just basically not worth your time, and it's 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 kind of hard not to feel sorry for Gideon at this point. Yeah, Gideon's going down,、um, and I don't think they ever adequately address the point that you made at,、uh, in a prior podcast where. If everything has been wiped out in debt, why can't all safes stay open? It makes absolutely no sense because Gideon himself said he had to furlough employees. So I mean, on paper, he's sort of off the hook. Now he wants to he wanted to eventually hire everyone back, even though we know that's probably pretty hopeless. But it doesn't make sense that he would shut the company down, even if he was associated with the hack. Maybe it was just a reputation thing being associated. It with such a huge hack, who would work with them anymore? But you know what? People still work with Goldman Sachs. Yeah, and I mean, if everything's on cash, how could you actually run a business that requires payments of like fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar contracts? Like, <laughs> would people just roll up with armored cars to pay you? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. It seems pretty. 
pretty daunting. And so maybe there is a reason that Gideon did what he did. And, you know, it doesn't help much that Leon is still stuck on Seinfeld. And he's talking about it being a cold, random universe. And Elliot in the diner, back in the diner, thinks he's seeing more men in black. Mr. Robot in the in the diner is, is, has appeared and says, you know, you can't ignore Gideon. And he's also saying to Elliot, you can't ignore me. I am the organ vitals to your existence and the whole idea of masking and unmasking how do Elliot asks how do I take off a mask when it stops being a mask so it's really playing a lot with identity and personhood I guess at this point yeah and I think uh, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about cognitive dissonance um, and the research and literature on cognitive dissonance and this idea that even if you don't believe something if you keep saying something long enough your attitudes will actually start shifting to become consistent with what you're saying. And so there is a lot of scientific support, actually, for this idea that the mask eventually becomes your face. There is a lot of support for that, absolutely. And I think that Darlene is experiencing a bit of cognitive dissonance because she was the most pure of heart, in my opinion, in terms of the goals. I mean, maybe Mr. Robot is as well. And she's really, at this point, keeping the movement going. She She's really... The, the schemer, she's the, the glue that's keeping everything together. Even though Elliot gets all the credit for bringing F Society together, it seems at this point, to me at least, Darlene is the one who is, even though she's sounding a little bit like George W. Bush, and that's kind of low saying that, she really is the leader at this point. Yeah, and I think she's completely underrated in terms of impact. Like, I think it's easy for us as a viewer, because we're very Elliot-centric, to overlook her role but she's really kind of the rock and glue uh she's like the steady kind of influence in Elliot's life like there's some hint about this idea that for a while they weren't on speaking term uh, maybe she had to go away for a while but it seems like now she's like the rock that's holding everything together she's providing continuity she's providing guidance and structure not only to Elliot but to all the people involved with their plan the actress who plays Darlene, her name is Harley Chaikin. She was on Hacking Robot. She seems really cool. She seems a lot like her character in terms of personality. And I think for me, the issue why I do not give Darlene as much credit as she probably deserves at first, she has kind of a vocal fry and it's a little bit hard to take that seriously. When you compare her to Portia Doubleday, who has a very nice speaking voice, when you get past that, she's the most perceptive one. She says, why does it feel like they are still winning? She knows something's wrong and she has that cognitive dissonance you're referring to. Yeah, I think she's extremely perceptive. It seems like she's always the one kind of telling us as a viewer the truth of things. Like when Ellie tried to kiss her and she's like, she realized, oh my gosh, like, did you forget again? And she could see right through his lies. I think she's very perceptive. I do. I love Darlene and I love the leadership role she's taking. And wow, she is really good at coming up with plans. The next scene is something that I have a personal experience with, and I don't want to get too biographical, the Evil Corp bank run. So there were people there who were trying to get their money out of the bank, only to find out that, well, their money doesn't exist. They don't have money to withdraw. And I have to tell you, Henry, I had that experience in 2008 when 
all those banks were shutting down in, in the midst of that financial scandal. My company had all of its money, and I don't want people to think it was a lot of money, you know, a small business payroll to pay people salaries. You know, we had a we have a business bank account, and they were one of the banks that went under. And my co-founder and I were hearing all these stories about people's bank accounts that were being frozen, not just with that bank, but throughout the country. And we knew with the minute we heard our bank was going down, we had to do a bank run. And we were hearing stories of people not being able to get their money. We were almost not going to be able to pay people. But we lucked out. It was a human thing. Our teller, she looked at us, we looked at her, and we made some kind of connection. And she helped us out. And I think, I think we got lucky if we had another person. Person, who knows? I'm glad that you were able to get that sorted out. But the way that your story involves, at the end of the day, a human being who's willing to be compassionate for you and help put a human face on the system. Because I think that's kind of what Elliot and also a lot of the viewers feel wrapped up in is that they're caught in an inhuman system and it's making the people not human and instead of the other way around like humanity is not winning against the system totally and when i saw that scene i was having flashbacks to that time because it was very similar to what we experienced on a much smaller level but when we went to the bank there were huge lines and it really did come down to that person they could have said i'm sorry the assets are frozen we can't do anything for you at this time i had several employees i had to pay including myself and they would have not had money for food and rent and who knows what else and I think therein lies the difference between interacting with a human being as opposed to interacting with a machine is that a human being, you can communicate, like you said, with a glance and just convey like the gravity of this or a human being on the other end can give you an explanation that somehow makes the rejection make sense or allows you to accept being told no. Whereas when it comes from a machine, it it's it's not just upsetting it somehow makes you feel less than human it does and it makes you feel like you have like you're saying you have no control elliot keeps talking about the illusion of control mr robot keeps reminding him it is an illusion sorry with so much biographical information when i was an undergraduate i had originally decided to be a psychology major like a million other undergraduates and i'll never forget i was sitting in a social psychology class and the first class that we had that semester, the professor said, yeah, we don't really know if any of this is really valid, what we're doing and anything we're studying. And oh, and the way you treat depressed patients is you give them the illusion of control. And I have to tell you, I was so disillusioned. What I was learning in a psychology class was to basically lie to your patient to make them think they have more control over their lives than they really do. And that just blew my mind. I switched majors, never looked back. I think they should have that same talk with lawyers in law school like you know basically lawyers tried to put the veneer of law and order and rationality on things that really it's just an illusion of rationality and the law there's actually something in many cases much deeper going on i think so too it, it's mm, it just goes so deep the illusion of control and it, it touches all of us in so many ways as humans anyway and then Speaking of Darlene coming up with amazing plans, Darlene is clearly behind, you know, we cut to Evil Corp 
Scott Knowles is there, the CTO. Philip Price, the evil corp CEO, is there, and and Sharon is is there as well. Sharon, the the attorney. There's a demand, five point nine million dollars, which references the original date of the hack, is to be delivered at Battery Park City, and a C-level executive, one of the officers, must be there. The CTO, Scott Knowles, who's kind of growing on me, steps up to the plate. Well, what he steps up, but he was kind of pushed up, right? Like, I, you've been in the business world. Like, you've probably been in number of meetings, countless meetings, where a request is being considered. And, you know, the group's discussing, should that request be met? But also kind of implicit in that discussion is, who's going to meet that request? Who's going to do the work to meet that request? And it can involve a lot of subtle jockeying to kind of push someone into a position where they will say, I'll do it. That's on me. I'll take risk. Did you get the sense that that was going on in this uh, scene? I definitely think that Scott Knowles was pushed into an untenable situation because it, I know you recall. At first he said, give me five days. Easy. We can fix it. Now, maybe he was being optimistic as CTOs sometimes are, but he was giving them the potentially the best course of action. And he was overruled by the attorney and the CEO. And so he basically got pushed into doing that. If I were evil like them, I don't know why that idea got overruled as well. Who the heck is Sharon? What does she know? I think she's the general counsel, right? Yeah, but still. But still, what do general counsels know? Exactly. Um, they know how to lie uh, yeah. in this case. But do you feel like the CTO just got pushed and railroaded into being the guy? Yeah, for sure. I thought that they were maneuvering him into a position where he had to be the good soldier and step and step up and say, I'll do it. And then they both kind of sit back and say, oh, that's so glad that you're stepping up. You don't have to, you know. And it's like, but they actually pushed him to do it. And the thing that really, I, I hear you. And the thing that really irked me a lot too, and I'm getting really hyped up about this because I think you and I have both been in these situations, right? The fact that yep. Sha Sharon was so blasé, like, oh, you know, uh, we can find $5.9 million in our, in our couch. Why did they not question how small amount that money was? If, if all... F society wanted was money. They could have asked for fifty million dollars. Why five point nine million? Sharon and and Philip Price should have been smart enough to know that that was some kind of trap potentially. Yeah, and I guess people in that kind of position oftentimes are blind to things like this because they assume that they're so far above the person making these demands. So it's like, oh, they have no idea how ridiculous yeah. five point nine million is nothing to me. Like, mm -hmm. but they're so poor that it's probably all their little minds think to think of to ask for you know no totally well i know we're sort of at the end this is where we hit the intermission for the first episode of season two unmasked and definitely some things were unmasked i really look forward to talking about the next episode with you do you have any any predictions or or closing thoughts to share i predict that there will be a flashback and i predict there will be imaginary people <laughs> <laughs> and I predict that Mr. Robot will be reading more Penthouse magazines with F Society models on the front cover. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. That's a very specific prediction. Oh, well done. <laughs> if anything, the, the cliffhanger intermission just you know reminds us that control is an illusion.
that in the end, we're just along for the ride. We are along for the ride. And I, for one, am glad that you are here to talk about the show with me and that we have all the wonderful listeners. Our subscriber numbers have gone up quite a bit. I'm super excited about that. So if you have feedback, please rate and review us on iTunes, blah, blah, blah. And please feel free to pass on comments or questions on our Facebook page at the Hello Frank Podcast. We'll read them on the air. Henry, thank you so much, and I'll be seeing you. All right. Talk to you later, Margaret. Bye. Take care. Bye, Henry. I'll talk to you soon. If you don't trust me, you do not want to hurt my feelings. How do I take off a mask when it stops being a mask? When it's as much a part of me as I am? We keep fighting. Like the world we unmasked, we will find our true selves again. Maybe after wiping away the thick, grimy film of Facebook friend requests and Vine stars, we can all see the light of day. I know we haven't talked in a while. Maybe you only trust me about as much as I trust you right now. But I'm gonna ask you to have hope for me anyway.